0: So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 7. Uh, We are continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in the series called Counterculture, which Paul is writing and correcting and rebuking a bunch of things about the church at the time. They're very relevant for us. And today we cover part 2 of a a series, a mini kind of two-week love and marriage looking at chapter 6 last week and then in 7. This week, and what I would say about chapter seven, just so you're aware, is it talks about uh, marriage and singleness in the first and last half of the chapter, and then in the middle is this section about living life as God called you. And we're going to cover that next week, just in case you were wondering why we skipped over that. We're going to cover that uh, section next week. So, if you have a Bible, I'll read verses one through 16. This is what the Word of the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 7:1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, But the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There is a lot of content in there. There is a lot to cover I'll try to be as efficient as possible, I'd ask you to pray, as, as none of the things that I would say would have value or meaning without the Spirit's guidance. So you pray and ask the Lord to speak, and I will pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for your wisdom, and Father, thank you for this letter to the church. Pray that we would glean from it, that your Spirit would guide us and teach us, and that you would give us steps to obey as we follow Jesus. And I pray these things in his name and all God's people said. So I want to start with a story. Uh, A brand new store opened up in New York City called the Husband Store. And the Husband Store, wives can go into the store and they can find a husband. But there are rules about this store. There's there's rules that they have to follow. And so the wife can go into the store and there's six floors of the store. And the rules are she can go in and the product goes up in value. Each floor you go up, but you can only choose one husband and you can all, you can go up floors, but you can never go down unless you're exiting the building. And so one day the wife goes into the store, the husband's store, and she goes into floor one and there's a sign there that says, On this floor, there are husbands who have jobs. And she thought, well, that's pretty good. But I'm intrigued. There's six floors. So I goes into the elevator, push the button up the second floor, and she walks out of the elevator door. And on the second floor, it said, these husbands have jobs and love kids. She thought, well, that's getting better. But again, six floors, she's intrigued. So she hops back into the elevator. She's going on a floor three. She opens the elevator door. And on that floor, it said these, on this floor, there's husbands who have jobs. They love kids. And they're extremely handsome. And she thought, wow, that's a great husband. I love that husband, but again, sixth floor, she's just, uh, she's intrigued, so she gets back in the elevator, and she goes up to the fourth floor, and she comes out of the elevator doors, and on this floor, these are men, husbands that have jobs, they love kids, they're extremely handsome, and they help with housework, and she was like, she thought she hit the jackpot, but she's like, there are six floors, I gotta know what's going on on those floors? So she gets back in the elevator. She goes in the elevator. She comes out, steps out on floor five, and she steps out on this floor. There are husbands that have jobs. They love kids. They're extremely handsome. They help with housework, and they have a strong romantic streak. She was like, this is amazing. She was like, Lord have mercy. What? This is going to be the one but there's another floor, so she's like, takes her chances, and she says, I'm going to go. She pushes the elevator. She goes up to the sixth floor, and she steps out, and then on the sixth floor, there is a sign that says, greetings, you are number 71,456,312. There are no husbands on this floor. This floor simply exists to show that women do not know what they want, and they cannot be pleased. Please exit the husband's store. Now, to avoid gender bias, the same owner opened up a store across the street called the wife's store. And you go on this floor, sixth floor is the same thing. And on the first floor, there are husbands who love sex. And I would tell you the rest of the floors, but it doesn't really matter because they've never been visited. Now here, I got to back up. I've been wanting to tell that story in a sermon forever. And I finally... Finally got the chance, but I'm glad God's word is going to be what we leave with today. But here's the thing about that. I think we can relate to that, and it's funny, and yet it's true. We can identify with it. That's why we connect with a story like that. And if we're honest, we're saying, yeah, that's probably a little bit true. Your women don't really like the first part of the story, but we can relate to that. Now, in a culture, Paul is very dealing with a very similar culture. Now, in our culture, we have a lot of confusion about relationships. We have confusion about what they look like, what marriages should look like. We have a lot of confusion about that, but we also have an idea that we are generally men and women created different. On the addition to that, our culture is confused about marriage about half of marriages to great sadness end in divorce. It doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not Christian. About uh, a, a huge population of people really are not getting married anymore. And there's a general apathy towards marriage. And then there are those who God never, listen to this, never intended to even get married, but they feel pressure because by what God would want for them in design, they feel pressure to get married as if it's some goal that you have to achieve in life. All the while, we have a need and a real great obedience to Christ to remain holy and pure in all of our relationships And so thankfully, God's word has something to say about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul writes the church in Corinth with purpose. In fact, if right away in verse 1, he says this, we get a little bit of clue of why is he talking about this. And it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, which means that the Corinthian church must have asked him in a previous letter to address this subject. And so Paul is responding to their request. They were asking him a question. And you see, the question, if, if we can make sense of that, how to understand what the question they're asking as they're making a statement is good for a man to not have sexual relations to the woman, what's, what's that all about? You have to understand the culture. We've looked at this a thousand times already, but Corinthian culture at the time reflected a pagan and corrupt moral practice of culture. The society tolerated sexual immorality of all kinds, and there were marriages starting and ending all the time. They had such confusion, not a whole lot different than ours. And the early church had members of all kinds of marriages, some even then thinking that it was more spiritual to be single or not be sexual in sexual relations at all. And so they would almost abandon their spouse and remain pure. And Paul's saying, well, that's not the answer either. And so some... We're walking out of marriages. Some were confused about marriage. Some were getting marriage at all, which is why Paul offers a response. Inspired by the Holy Spirit and loaded with information about a bunch of different circumstances. People in the church wanted to know, as I hope we want to know, what should I do if this is my circumstance? Now that I am a believer in Christ, now that I am obedient to Christ and his word, how then shall I live in order to honor him? Now, everyone in the room can benefit from this teaching no matter where you are. When you come to a passage like this, oh, like, it doesn't apply to me. There's value in it. Who's in the room? By age, you have young people today present and middle-aged people and older people. By status, there are those in this room who are not married and those who have been married or are married and those who will marry. So wherever you are today, you can learn from a text like this. Within each of those groups that I just mentioned, there's, of course, all these subcategories and groups. But regardless of your state or past state or future state, Paul has something to say. It's in the Bible. And so a text like this is really hard to organize because it's so full of information. And so the way that I decided to do that to make it really uh, central and applicable for all of us to just give you three big ideas that I would want everyone to walk away with regardless of uh, whatever circumstance or state you find yourselves in. And these three things are what I would want to impart is one, marriage is the gift and plan of God. Second one is sex is the gift and plan of God. And the third is that singleness is also a gift and plan of God. Now, there are a bunch of questions in this text that are drawn out, and so we'll try to answer them as the time allows. And first, I want to look at marriage as a gift and plan of God. So hear this biblical statement. I don't really think the Bible is confusing on this subject. Many in our culture think this. But hear this biblical statement. God intends marriage to be permanent and for the sexual relationship within that to be Permanent. God's original plan for marriage between a husband and a wife did not allow divorce or celibacy. So those statements are true. One more time, God intends marriage to be permanent and for the sexual relationship within it to be permanent. God's original plan for marriage between a husband and a wife did not allow for divorce or celibacy. Now scripture gives numerous reasons for marriage. And some alliteration here will be on the screen. Well, five reasons that I can think of. One is procreation. You'll find this in Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply. For pleasure, Proverbs 5. Solomon writes in verses 18 and 19 about the relationship between the husband and wife. For partnership, you'll also see that in Genesis. Adam was created for Adam, a helper, suitable. It was good for man not to be alone. It's a picture which Nancy read in Ephesians 5 about the symbolism of Christ and his relationship with the church. And finally, it is about purity too in 1 Corinthians 7 too, which we saw is good for a husband to then have a wife, one wife or a wife to have one husband because of the desires and the passions. And that's the chapter we're in today. So for those five reasons, at least the Bible teaches us are good reasons for marriage And so as we handle this text briefly, we'll just walk around and I would say it's not going to go in order. So I'm going to skip the first seven verses or six verses and get to the marriage part before we address the other two. So this is about marriage being a gift from God. And in verses eight, as we start, I'm going to read that right there. Um, Verses eight through 16, Paul writes about marriage. He starts, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He starts by telling the unmarried and widows that it's good for them to remain single, which I'll talk about in a little bit here. But then he suggests a reason, being self control from passions and, and from the tempting nature of which Satan would thwart or use those passions to derail us. He says, This is a better option to maintain purity and holiness in life. God created marriage for the purposes just mentioned. And Paul is not, and I want to make this clear, Paul is not denying those purposes by saying that. There's reasons as we'll unpack. He is simply advocating for a situation that he presently found himself in and frees him to do the Lord's work without responsibility, which we'll also touch on a little bit as the end of chapter 7 reminds us. And so he goes on then reminding people, how to live then. If you're going to marry, which is good, if you cannot remain single, go and marry, and then this is how you should live in that marriage. And the first is the truth and seriousness of the covenant of marriage in verse 10 there. To the married, I give this charge. And then in parentheses, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Why does he do that? He says, I give this charge. That's, all of us should perk our ears up in the Bible and says, I give this charge, this command, if you will, something to obey that it is good or rather that the wife should not separate for the husband, I, not the Lord. Why does he say that? Because he's reaffirming the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 19. When Jesus was teaching about marriage and divorce in chapter 19 and verse six, he says, so they no longer are two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate I speak that at every time I gather with a couple of premarital counseling and every time I marry them. I speak those words that Jesus spoke because they're pretty clear. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong covenant. And Jesus said, What God has joined together, lo- let no man separate, establishing the design and original desire for God to keep marriages together. But then you keep reading and you see verse 11 in parentheses, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. There are reasons we know why marriages end in our culture, and all of them are sin. All of them. And I say that not to jab at you if that be your past, but to say it's a result of living in a sinful and fallen state. We live in a sinful world and there is sin that abounds between relationships, and they're not perfect. That's why Jesus came to restore and to one day give us the hope of looking forward. But, but marriages end for really two reasons. One is death, which is part of the sinful natural world. And the other is because of the behaviors of one or another of the spouse in sinfulness in some way. That's why they end. We're humans and we fail. Paul knew this. Jesus knew this. That's why we need him. That's why he came to save sinners. And so both Paul and Jesus, knowing that, are kind of also throwing out reasons why you should just not, why why it would be not good to just chuck a marriage or get rid of it. Saying, this isn't about selfish incompatibility or, or just a desire, I don't want to be married anymore. He said, it's higher than that. And you have to be really careful with the text like this because what it looks like, what people do with the Bible is it's a provision. And, well, there's an allowance. And I would say there is, but we have to be careful about it. Careful about this provision Jesus did speak about in Matthew 19 and Paul's reaffirming for separating. And it's usually because of sexual immorality and adultery. And Jesus made that provision, if you will, that that would be a case where he would understand that the hurt and sinfulness of that could separate a marriage And he kind of gives that, not as an out for that believer, if you will, in Christ, but at least an allowance for it being too difficult to humanly repair. And he says, if that happens, and the husband and a wife or wife is still alive, they should remain single or be reconciled. He really gives only two options. We can make another one up, but it's just not there in the text. He says, if that would happen, if your marriage would end that way, you're to remain single or Be reconciled to your husband in the the beauty and ministry of the gospel. There's no third option. A lot of people wonder about that. I just don't know how you can get around other than making one up. And I would be careful in in, in saying this. If that be your situation or have found yourself in a situation, we should always, the church should err on the side of caution and grace in that situation of doing what is most right unto God. And to those in other categories of marriage, Paul continues Well, what about marriages that include one believer and a non believer? I'm glad you asked because Paul answers that. And some people find themselves in that situation in this room. Sometimes people become what the Bible calls unequally yoked. And I would have other two things before I get into that. I would, one, give you a warning about that, especially as a young person. If you're not married and you're a believer, don't go and date a non-believer. That is very, very bad. Things are not going to go well. That's what the Bible says. And so you young people that you come home with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you tell your parents, yeah, look who I'm dating. And most of good Christian parents will ask, do they know Christ? Well, no, but I'm hoping to evangelize to them or her. Your parents will just like melt inside because they know that won't go well. And that's what the Bible speaks of. So there's a warning about that. But there are situations where believers come to faith later in Christ when they're already married, and then they're married to someone else who may not be a believer. And that is what Paul is addressing. Someone coming to faith after they're married, they find themselves in a difficult situation. And so he says this To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, this is Paul saying that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Then he talks about the children as well. And Paul is saying, if you are in that situation, and you're a spouse that loves the Lord, but your other spouse doesn't, he says, but they're willing to stay married, stay married. And then he makes a provision at the end, but if they leave, let them leave, be at peace. Wives, now wives of unbelieving husbands, which seems to be more popular and uh, common, I would say, not popular in our culture, is a little more difficult. And I know there are women who exist in this church body who live in that state. Why? Because there is another man in the house. Jesus sets the pace, right? And if you don't know that, you should know that wives who have unbelieving husbands, you ought to pray for them and care for them because there is a difficulty that exists there. Because the wife is trying to submit to Christ first and it inevitably causes friction to a husband that cares little about submitting to Christ and being led by him. I believe both situations would be challenging, but that is especially challenging for that reason. Now, the sanctification and holiness thing that Paul starts to unpack about why they should stay together does not apply to salvation, but it does apply to a holiness of setting apart. Think of it this way. If one Christian exists in the home, this is going to be morally and spiritually better for that home than it would be if two non-believers lived in the home. Makes sense? And so Paul says, if you were to remain in that marriage in that home, it would be to the benefit of your household. And that same thing, that influence of holiness, extends towards kids and children in the house, not in salvation, but in protection and influence. God can work and the gospel can transform in these situations. There will be that hope that exists that those who are in this room, in this state, that God can work in that situation. And I would say God bless you in that way. And the church ought to come and support situations like this especially. Most of all, supporting that that people in those states would, would trust and have faith. I know several stories of spouses coming to faith after many years of their other spouse praying for them. That is a beautiful thing. I also know several stories of that spouse never coming to faith in Christ. And God chooses to save some and have mercy and chooses not to. And I don't understand all of that, but I know that it's God being sovereign. And we have to let God be sovereign. So if you find yourself there, be at peace. Trust the Lord with your situation. There's more I could say, but I have to keep this train moving. Marriage is the gift gift. And plan of God. The second thing he says is sex is a gift and plan of God. This is addressed because many believers in the church in Corinth were probably denying that to their spouse because they were thinking that it was more holy to go without or spiritual. And again, walking out of marriages and it was harmful to their relationship and the individual. And so Paul, you know, gives counsel into that. And that's the first part of the text which we read. Now concerning matters about what you wrote, Skipping to verse 2, but because of the temptation, each man should have his own wife. To verse 3, the husband should give to his wife for conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you. Now this, of course, is for two believing spouses. Paul writes this about sex within the context of marriage and context of marriage and specifically that this is about self-control and exercising that gift. Now marriage cannot, I have to be careful with this, cannot simply be reduced to God's escape valve for sex, right? We know that. There are reasons that are higher than that. But here Paul gives reasons through this text why he would like make this a point because there are passions that exist that Satan would use. The reality of it, he says there in verse 2, he says it again in verse 9, and then he mentions it in verse 36 at the end when he says, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly, mentioning engaged betrothed, if his passions are strong, let him do so. Let him marry, because then he will not be in sin. Sex is a gift from God, and it's a gift that can only be used in the context of marriage. This is ultra clear in Scripture. Again, our culture, others would confuse you about this or try to confuse you, but it's really clear in Scripture about that. Because of sin then, God provides not just a way to be holy, but to demonstrate such intimate fellowship as we read in Ephesians 5 between Christ and the church. says it's a mystery, that relationship. But there's the intimacy and beauty of a marriage relationship. And so here's what I would say and I'm going to keep this brief because we've covered this in a, in a few weeks past. But here's what I'd say about this. If you are young and not married yet, you need to keep your passions in check. And I would say and not of married age and flee from su- such temptations. Run, like I said last week, maintaining purity and holiness and Christ-likeness. And if you are lo- young and looking to be married because you have passion, I would say this. Wait on God to provide. And if you are engaged, don't wait long in your engagement. I think Paul writes about this in verse 25 when he says that to engaged or betrothed. About that in the text there, marry sooner rather than later is what I would say. The practical problems of an early marriage are not as serious as the danger of immorality in that. Some people today have long engagements, 18 months because they're planning wedding venues and all that stuff. Get married at the courthouse or something else. Just do it quickly. And if you want to have a celebration later, that's good. But you got to think about your holiness in this. And here's what I'd say. If you are married, Paul writes what he writes because there is a reality of passion to be fulfilled in marriage. There is a reality to understand that it is a gift. And for most husbands, i.e. the husband's store, wife's store earlier, it's a need. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I tell couples in premarital counseling all the time, I say this to them, and then I usually repeat it at their wedding. I say, never give your spouse a reason to go looking for something somewhere else. That's what I tell them. I just say, never be the reason that your spouse goes looking for something else. If you're married, you should know that. And I would say romance is a tricky thing. I'm not going to go on and on about this, but you have to figure it out for your holiness, you have to do it together, and Paul's counsel is clear. Don't deprive each other of that. Now, in verse 5, he says there are seasons and reasons why perhaps that would not happen for a time that you are tending to other worldly matters. And there's a whole host of things that I can continue on about. I don't have the time for that. But he says those are seasons where you should devote yourselves to prayer and turning towards Christ, and then after that, coming back together. It's about holiness so that Satan would not get a foothold. And in our culture, that is a very real thing. So marriage is a gift and plan of God. Sex is also the gift and plan of God. And finally, singleness, not to be left out or last for any other reason than just being third. Singleness is the gift and plan of God. And Paul asserts that he believes it is better, in fact, to be single. So he's saying it's a better state to remain as he is. Now real quick, was Paul married before? Perhaps there is some knowledge that he was as a Jewish member of the Sanhedrin most of them were. He was not he did not was not converted or have faith in Christ and so he probably if he was married, which I'm not sure we all know the answer to that, but there's a possibility that he was and is now not married and is saying it would be good to remain single as he is now when he came to Christ that probably changed. And so when we looked back at verses 8 through 16, Paul reminded them that singleness is a gift from God, and he applies that basic truth to four groups of people. One, those who are formally married, two, those who are married to believers, three, those who are married to unbelievers and want to remain married, and four, those who are married to unbelievers and who want to leave the marriage. In the first situation, God offers an option. In another three, in the next three, he doesn't. And he said, Singleness is not a bad thing. In many uh, that in society, although many believe it is, he unpacks that in verses 25 through 35. And I just want to read this. I know we're running a little short on time here, but he says this. He says, "Now concerning the betrothed or engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife?" do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, listen to this, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Husbands, don't be rolling your eyes at that comment right now. Oh, don't I know it. That's not what he's saying. (laughs) Wives would be equally rolling their eyes at you. This is what I mean, brothers. The point of time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. He says the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And the interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you. But to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying you will have worldly troubles if you're married, and that's just part of it. Doesn't mean your spouse, you're nudging them right now. See, I told them you were trouble, because they look back at you. And he's saying you're just gonna have responsibility and anxiousness about things that a single person wouldn't experience. You don't have to be like you can do ministry freely. You don't have this tug back home. I like, ma, like you know who you are, like ah, oh, my wife doesn't let me go out past seven or whatever it is. All those things you have to think about. I don't know why I said that. I can go out past seven, but I'm usually not awake past seven, so it's not even a thing. (laughs) So he says, you're just going to have trouble. And the single person has more devotion and time to spend fixated on ministry in Christ. The point is is that those who are singled when converted to Christ should know that it's good for them to stay that way. There's no need to rush into marriage. And here's the thing. Many well-meaning Christians are not content to let single people be single. You know who you are in the church. It's for all you moms of single people and all you matchmakers in the church. And then we joke about it, but it's a problem. You think that everybody needs to get married, so you're gonna set them up with a little, ah, you two would be good together. Stay out of it. Leave them alone. You're not even being biblical. You have to resist that urge. Strong, mature believers should resist that urge. Why? Because marriage is not necessary or superior to singleness. And as Paul writes, it actually limits some for the potential to serve Christ. Don't be a part of that. I I know you're trying to do well, right? I was just trying to help. That's famous last words for somebody that's going to destroy something. I was just trying to help. Don't try to help, okay? I got to wrap this up here. Now, if you're single but you're desiring to get married, several things that a Christian could do in that dilemma, I can think of two. One would be this. Do not seek to simply be married, but seek a person you can love and trust and respect. I find that happens. People just want to get married, they'll marry anybody. Seek someone you can love, trust, and respect and letting marriage come as a response to that commitment of love. People would just want to get married to get married, run the risk of marrying the wrong person. And the second thing is this. It is fine. It's okay to be on the lookout for the right person. But the best way you can be finding the right person is by being the right person. The best way you can do that is to pursue a life of Christ-likeness. a believer who is right with God and, and seeking him and his will. If it is his will for them to get married, God will ordain that and show that. You don't have to force that. He will know the perfect and right person that comes along. And so I say this, marriage is the gift and plan of God. Sex is the gift and plan of God. Singleness is the gift and plan of God. Wherever you are, whatever status you have or come from, the beauty of this and where you should always land is there is hope, there is grace, an opportunity to please God. Next week, we're going to look at that specifically, wherever God has called us, we should glorify him. But in all of these things, you have to land at the good news of the gospel. In all of this, there is a greater knowledge that we need to know. Above marriage and singleness and all things, we need to land here that the best and highest thing you could do in life is to know God and enjoy Him. And we have to land there that Jesus came to die for sinners, married and single. He came to die for the sins of sexual immorality and the reality of broken marriages and he's the great healer, and he can redeem all who trust him by faith. And so I would say, are you married? Trust God. Place your faith in Christ. Are you single? Trust God. Place your faith in Christ. Let's pray. I want to leave you this from Colossians uh, chapter 3. Paul is writing here about wives and husbands as well, and at the end of it, he says this, which I think is a good word for us to leave with. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Go and do that. Go and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just say, enjoy your day. Be a blessing to others. Go and spread the news of the gospel. Have a joyous day. Go in peace. You are sent.